0: 100,000 Australians live with chronic hepatitis C but thanks to the latest treatment options most cases can now be cured. The Medically Supervised Injecting Room or EMSA for short is providing more hep C testing and treatment than any facility aside from prisons. My name's Mia and today I'm joined by my co-host Dr. Nico Clark, the EMSA's medical director. The EMSA provides several wraparound supports to all its clients, and those supports include testing for and treatment of hepatitis C. And because the EMSA is accessed by people who inject drugs, it has a crucial role to play in the eradication of hep C in Victoria and Australia. But before we go any further, I should point out that this episode will discuss injecting drug use in detail, which may affect some listeners supports available through direct line the alcohol and drug counseling and referral service the phone number is one eight hundred right let's get into it
1: hey uh, i'm sioni i'm the ceo at harm reduction victoria which is an organization in victoria which represents and provides service to people who use drugs
2: i'm nico i'm the medical director of the medically supervised injecting room
3: Uh, I'm Jacinta. I'm a Senior Staff Hepatology and Gastroenterologist. Uh, I provide hepatitis C-related care for patients at St Vincent's Hospital. Great. Um, So I thought we'd start with hep C as a topic. Um, I find it
0: really overwhelming, all the different types of hepatitis. When I had looked into it, I just realised that they're all inflammation of the liver. Uh, They generally all have the same symptoms and they generally differ in the way that it's transmitted and the treatments, the way it's treated and also the incubation period for each um, different type. Is that, am I on
3: the, yeah. in the so, park? so yeah. he- hepatitis just means inflammation of the liver. So yeah. you're absolutely right there. But there are sort of three major types that we look at in terms of significant liver problems. Um, when I think about hepatitis, I think about two different types of hepatitis. I think about the type that gives you a bit like a gastro type illness. Um, and they're very acute and they go away, generally speaking. So that's hepatitis A and E. Um, And then there's the blood-borne virus hepatitis. So that's hepatitis B and C. And they're different viruses because they're actually spread through uh, contact with infected blood. So that's hepatitis B and C. And and the difference between those versus the ones that cause a gastro-type illness, which can also cause inflammation of the liver, the difference is that they cause chronic infection. Mm -hmm. So they actually cause long-term infection. Um, Hepatitis C in Australia, at least, is predominantly acquired through infected blood contact and it's in Australia through injecting drug use. And um, how does hep C mainly affect people who inject drugs? How does it
0: impact their life, like in terms of symptoms and
3: quality of life? So hepatitis C remains a significant global health issue. Um, For many people, they can have no symptoms or symptoms that they attribute to other things. The most common symptoms are things like a little bit of pain in their liver, which is on the right upper side of their abdomen, and they may experience a bit of fatigue as well. In the more severe forms, you can get quite significant pain, sometimes even joint aches and pains, and then there can be complications from it. And the real worry about hepatitis C is it's a bit of a silent killer, and over time, with many, many years of infection, with lots of chronic inflammation that goes on in the liver, there's chronic damage that can lead to very bad scarring of the liver, what we call cirrhosis, and that can lead to liver failure, and that can lead to liver cancer and even death. In 2015, there were more than 71 million people estimated to be infected with the virus worldwide. And in Australia, nearly 200,000 people, 20% of whom didn't even know they had hepatitis C. And one of the issues with hepatitis C, certainly back in those days, and I'm talking 2015, was that the treatment wasn't very effective. It was a combination of an injection, which was the patients had to give themselves weekly, as well as some tablets. And it was quite a toxic treatment with a lot of side effects. Um, In addition to that, the treatment wasn't very effective. So the overall success rate with those treatments were 55% of people only were cured. There's been a little bit of a revolution in treatment of hepatitis C, which has been really exciting and has really been a game change for patients with hepatitis C, and that was the development of these new treatments for hepatitis C, what we call the direct acting antivirals or the DAAs. These new treatments are tablet form, so there's no injections anymore. They're only for short durations, anywhere between 8 and 12 weeks, And the important thing about them is that there are very few side effects, if any. Most patients don't even notice anything.
2: And they're also much more effective.
3: And they're really much more effective. So the cure rates are greater than 95%. So out of every 100 people we will treat, more than 95 of those will actually be cured.
2: So have we been able to treat everybody in Australia who has Hepatitis C with these new wonderful treatments?
3: So unfortunately, the answer to that is no. Um, And this is a really good point. So in 2016, the World Health Organisation recognised that Hepatitis C was a global health issue and recognised that people were dying unnecessarily from Hepatitis C and that with these new effective treatments we could actually eliminate hepatitis C as as a global health threat. And so they actually set very ambitious targets to actually eliminate hepatitis C as a problem by the year 2030, which is now only eight years away.
2: Uh, And so elimination of hepatitis C is a little bit like COVID elimination, that the more... The more people that you identify, the sooner you identify them, the sooner you prevent them from Yep, absolutely.
3: So the more you can treat people, the less of it there is and the less of it there is to pass on. But also, importantly, you can actually prevent some of those complications I talked about, including death.
2: Who have we treated then and who haven't we treated in Australia?
3: Yeah, so... When the new treatments became available in 2016, and and there was a huge spike in treatment numbers, something like 30,000 in the first year that these new treatments became available. Since that time, there has been a gradual drop-off, and I guess during COVID, a more precipitous drop-off of treatment numbers. And this is a problem if we're thinking about elimination, and we've only got eight years left to go. And
2: and what do we know about the, the people who need treatment?
3: Um, they, as I mentioned, the predominant method of transmission of hepatitis C in Australia is through injecting drug use. The prisoners are also another high-risk population, um, higher population um, that inject drugs as well. Um, one of the issues that we find is that these, these individuals, unfortunately, for many different reasons, don't engage with the traditional models of care for hepatitis C. And so it requires them to actually firstly present to somebody, uh, their GP or another medical practitioner, And then what needs to happen is they need to have the test ordered. The patient then needs to go and get the blood test done. They need to return for the result. And with the Medicare system at the moment, we have a screening test, which is the antibody test. Once they get that result, they then need to do the test to see whether they've actually got active infection. And that's the way that the reimbursed system or the bulk bulk billing system works in Australia. So there's a number of different steps to even just diagnose someone with active hepatitis C infection. Then after that, they need to go back to their general practitioner or, or service provider and then get treated for it, and then go to their chemist and get the prescription.
2: Sioni, what's your perspective on why people who are injecting drugs aren't accessing these new wonderful hepatitis treatments? In harm reduction, we work with
1: people sort of in, you know, in their lives, and um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens, you know, way before anyone even goes anywhere near a service. Um, and there are a lot of places that we could engage with people, um, and so. One of those places is obviously MSER, but there are other ways as well. And I think one of the reasons that's important is because people's lives are is sometimes complex. We might not even want to present to a service. And I, I've personally had this experience as well, because if you are a person who's injecting drugs or has injected drugs, there's very few opportunities, there's very few times when you present to a um, a health service where Talking about that is a positive experience, and you really need to admit that to to, to be able to progress with Hep C treatment. So I've cha- what, what cha- do you yeah. mean? It
2: might not Sorry. be a positive experience. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I can tell you that it can take quite a long time to build up the uh, trust with someone to actually tell them that you're an injecting drug user, even if it's in your past. Um, you might have other things like you know that you don't want to you don't want to put at risk by telling a doctor that you're an injecting drug user. So if you're on any kind of prescription that's restricted in any anyway, uh, if they get a hint of that, you might be taken off your benzodiazepines or whatever it is. And those you know um, those sort of medications can be really important for people. Um, but people can also have <clears throat> outright negative experiences. So we've got numerous stories about people uh, who have you know essentially been. Chased out of doctors' offices because, or, or you know, once it was found out that they were um, wanting to access something to do with like pharmacotherapy or um, even hepatitis C treatment.
2: You mean by pharmacotherapy? You mean pharmacotherapy treatment for yeah. their opiate dependence, for example. Yeah.
1: Um, it's still there are still very few GPs that, um, or even specialists that that, um, that you know work with this population, which is why MSER is so important. And that stigma, you carry it with you when you wherever you go later on. It really only takes one or two experiences like that to feel like that's always going to happen to you. And you can read it in things that don't even that maybe aren't even intended that way. <clears throat> you know, so we talked earlier on about how um see if you're sitting in a waiting room in your everyone else is being seen before you it happened to me at the gp the other day it's very hard not to th- look around and think i came here before these people why are they being seen and you know you have an expectation that you're being stigmatized and discriminated against
2: yeah i can imagine if perhaps you haven't had the opportunity to have a wash or wash your clothes more recently that's yep. only going to make that um that feeling even more acute so when you yeah. you said hr vic before so that's harm reduction victoria that's the organisation that you you had yeah what's what's the concept of harm reduction in terms of uh, as opposed to you know as a method of kind of helping people who are using sure. drugs what does that mean so harm reduction
1: is uh, it's a philosophy and it's also a service delivery modality i suppose you'd say so there's two different parts to it so harm reduction itself is a is an approach to working with people who use drugs that's about uh, meeting people where they're at so not trying to stop them from using drugs but actually from working with them to ensure that When they're using drugs, they're as safe as possible. One of its first kind of manifestations in Australia in particular was the needle and syringe program. So when we had HIV in the 80s and there was no cure for it and and it was found out that, you know, you could get it through sharing uh, needles... There were some um, sort of far-sighted people who um, decided that we needed to try and um, bring in sterile needles and syringes for people to use, so they, you know, so we could l- reduce the amount of HIV that's being spread. Um, and that goes for Hep C as well. So, needles and syringe programs, for instance, they're not about stopping people from using drugs; they're about stopping stopping people from being infected and spreading bloodborne viruses. Really, so that's harm reduction in a nutshell. Are uh, you reducing the harm related to something rather than Drug, the and drug Australia's itself. been
2: regarded as very successful from a harm reduction perspective in preventing an HIV outbreak, for example, in the people who inject drugs, yep. unlike many countries which have had really large HIV outbreaks for, where, that have kind of yeah. in some ways been spread by people who are injecting drugs. So Jacinda was talking about the complexity of accessing the healthcare system if you've got hepatitis and, and you've talked about how any interaction with their, their healthcare system can be challenging for people. So is it really so difficult for people injecting drugs to a- access hepatitis care in, in Australia? Has that been the experience of your organisation?
1: Yeah, just things like your day-to-day life, you know. If you're, if you're using opioids in particular every day or, or methamphetamine for that matter, um, that might be your priority for the day is to get get that drug so that you feel straight, you know. Most people who use drugs need to actually use the drugs to feel normal. So that would be your priority. And, and if you've made an appointment, for instance, then there's not really going to be any competition between getting money or, or, or using drugs and the, the appointment. You know, there are other things that exist in our lives, like people living in rural or remote areas and regional areas are just not as serviced in any way medically so that's 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 one but we've undertaken sort of peer navigation projects which are all about sort of working with people really closely to kind of reduce as many of these barriers as possible with them and still had a lot of trouble even when we've worked really closely with people because especially you know highly marginalized kind of populations people who are street-based and so forth you know um, acquired brain injuries and mental health issues are really are really really common those are the sort of things that really take precedent and priority over you know, an infection that you barely feel day to day. We're involved in various campaigns and one of the more recent ones to try and engage with people who maybe, you know, spread out across the population and maybe aren't in touch with services as much as um, a campaign called It's Your Right, which is a,
2: a national health promotion campaign that we're part of locally as well. So you mentioned that the services like the injecting room, so maybe that's a good point to kind of talk a little bit about what, what we tried to do when we set up the the injecting room and, and with a clear expectation that we would try and support people to access a range of health services and also to reduce the spread of blood-borne viruses. And that's when we we called St V's and we thought, let's see if we can have a partnership with St Vincent's that can make it easier for people to get their testing and, and their treatment. And so Jacinda, do you want to talk a little bit about how yeah. that, what we what we came up with?
3: We were trying to work out how we, we access those patients that weren't in our care at the hospital system and partnering with the MC was incredibly important in actually accessing some of these people who, as Sioni mentioned, have multiple barriers and multiple competing priorities and, and don't actually turn up for their appointments or can't turn up for their appointments or don't even know they have hepatitis C. We run an integrated integrated hepatitis program. So we are funded by the government to have an integrated hepatitis nurse who is specialised in hepatitis C related care. And we actually had one of our nurses come to the EMSA a couple of days a week and actually engage the clients that were attending the injecting room and approaching them for hepatitis C testing if they were positive, actually commencing them on treatment through the EMSA rather than having to come through the hospital system. And
2: and, uh, we saw an immediate uptake in, in treatment. It's fair to say when we said to people were you interested in hepatitis treatment? If they said yes, we would just say, well, let's do it now. And the majority would say, okay, might as well get it out of the way now. And then we had a a further development with the kind of on-site testing, which became available. Do you want to say a little bit what that involves?
3: One of the things that that has been in development for a number of different illnesses, including COVID, has been what we call point-of-care testing, which is the rapid testing. So we're all familiar with rapid antigen testing for COVID, the little swab up your nose and then five minutes later or 15 minutes later, you get a result. And this has been a revolution in hepatitis C-related testing as well. So um, it's not quite ready for prime time just yet, just because of the approval process that the government puts in place to have it as an accredited test. What it does is it takes that sample, we can run it on site in a machine and get a result back in about an hour. So there's a potential really for same-day test and treat, which is phenomenal in terms of actually getting people onto treatment.
0: So now that I have an understanding of hepatitis C, I thought it would be a good idea to split up this podcast into part B, where we talk about the client experience of receiving treatment for hepatitis C. And over here, we have Jenny, who's going to help guide us through that. Can you introduce yourself?
4: Hi, I'm Jen. I'm a research nurse working at the Melbourne Supervised Injecting Rooms here in Melbourne.
2: Jen, you're the nurse working in the injecting room on this treatment service at the moment. Mm. What does that look like then on a day-to-day basis?
4: One of the things for us is that We have an opportunity to engage with our clients perhaps in an easier uh, way than other services might be able to because we already know that they're injecting. So that's one barrier gone. They can talk freely to us about their injecting habits and it makes it a little easier for us to build trust. And so once we've built some trust, we can... uh, move on to talking about health issues. And um, I've found that a lot of our clients who've undertaken the testing and then subsequently been found to be positive and then gone through with the treatment, they really see it as a huge relief out of their life. So even if they haven't experienced symptoms as such, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, oh, I'm just so glad that I've done that. But, you know, it's it's not easy always to access treatment. A lot of our clients are mistrustful of mainstream services and the other barriers that we've talked about, actually just getting to an appointment, following through with instructions from that appointment can be really difficult. One of the things that hasn't been mentioned yet is that, Once we have diagnosed someone um, as positive for hep C, we can get the treatments into the MSER service. So we provide the tablets for them right then and there. A lot of our clients don't have phone contact. So we need to really proactively outreach and find them and make sure that they're taking the tablets and and getting the tablets that they need and then doing the after-treatment testing those sorts of things. So we have a a little system in place where we put alerts on a client's file so that we know if they're coming into the building and we can catch them right where they are and um, engage with them and see how they're doing with their treatment. And it seems to be working pretty well.
2: You you were saying to me before that sometimes when people have finished their hepatitis treatment, they start raising other concerns they have with you, is it?
4: Yes, yes, they do. I think once you've established that rapport with someone... And the great thing about the particular work I'm doing, I'm not working specifically on the floor, but I, I I'm working in a situation where I can create a good rapport with a client because we're doing a little bit of a, a a survey and a study. So it's a chance to ask a few questions and to get to know each other a bit better and I really enjoy that aspect of my work as well because we you know there's some amazing people who come into the injecting rooms, their stories are just really incredible. And um, so once we we find that we're getting on well, they're much more likely to want to open up about other things that are going on in their life.
3: But what what I find really interesting is the number of people that still don't realise that hepatitis C is curable and that there are new treatments that are highly effective, the tablets, and there are very few side effects. And that's come up multiple times actually through the clientele that are approaching us mm. through, through our program at the moment and the number of people that I think then go on and tell their other injecting partners or their friends and family who may also have respective hepatitis C has been really rewarding from my perspective as well. Mm.
4: Yeah, I can, I can feel that there's been um, at the MSo there's been a real um, bubble out of of word of mouth between the injecting community. Uh, from those who have been treated. Another thing I'd like to say is I think it's really helping reduce the stigma because I'm actually surprised sometimes at how openly clients are prepared to talk about their own hepatitis C in front of all the other clients when, you know, I might be saying, well, let's go into a room and have a chat. They don't want to go into a room to have a chat. They want to talk about it in front of everybody else. So other people are listening and they and they might be hearing just how easy it's been for them to have the treatment just how happy they are to have been treated and then that that sort of puts the the thought in other clients minds that perhaps they should get tested as well
2: so can you give us a, a bit of an idea for somebody who perhaps hasn't been inside the indictment room what's the context are, are you are you talking to people uh about getting tested before they've used heroin or after they've used or are they intoxicated? How does it work on a day-to-day basis?
4: I don't work with clients who I assess as being um, heavily sedated or intoxicated. However, I do work with quite a lot of clients after they've had a heroin or amphetamine shot because they're actually feeling more relaxed. And as Sione mentioned before, a lot of clients who are using heavily th- their drug use is actually only just bringing them back to a normal level it's not sort of making them so sedated that they can't understand what you're saying so i have to make that judgment but i am working quite a lot with clients who've a uh, post
2: injection and how do they respond you ha- you come up to them and ask them if they'd like a hepatitis test or you just have a chat i mean how do you raise it with people
4: yeah, I'll I'll just say to them, you know, we're doing a a study. We're trying a new way of testing for Hep C with a finger stick test. We've got some easy to take drugs if you do happen to be Hep C positive now. And would you like to be
2: tested? And how do you? What kind of response do you get?
4: Um, The other great thing about the EMSA is we have this aftercare room. So uh, when people have had their shot, they come into the next room. And whilst this side of things had to shut down a bit during COVID, it's back running now where we can provide tea and coffee. Um, a place to relax, a place where we can make sure everyone's okay before they leave and um, they can get food and it's another way to engage clients and and, um, perhaps if they talk of any issues, we can perhaps help refer them on to somewhere where they can get
2: help for those issues. And, And then if somebody agrees, you'll do a finger prick test on the spot and yes. and you'll have the result back within an hour within
4: an hour yeah, yeah. And, and
2: then sometimes we can also offer that to people before they've injected and so we yeah. might have the result that's b- right back after or they... people
4: who are no longer injecting or who are at the moment are using um opioid substitution yeah. therapy
2: and then you might do a scan a fibro scan as you mentioned before to yeah. look at how severe their cirrhosis is while they're waiting for the results to come back and
4: We do have the ability to do fibro scans or liver scans, which is a great thing, particularly for clients who... Quite a few clients will tell me, oh, I know I've had hepatitis for 20 or 30 years, I just haven't done anything about it. So that puts up a little bit of a red flag for me that, oh, you know, it would be good to check and see how their liver's going. And a fibroscan scan will check the stiffness of the liver and gives us an indication of how serious liver damage might be.
2: And if the result comes back positive, how quickly can we organise treatment for people?
4: Well, when the result comes back, I actually refer the client to Jacinta. By email and into writes a script and sends it off to our local pharmacy and our local pharmacy kindly delivers the medications to us back at Sir. So whilst it may not happen on the same day, it, it does happen reasonably quickly and as long as the client has a phone and we can contact them quickly, we could have them on treatment within a couple of days.
2: You know, when we started making this point of care treatment available, we had such a rush of people getting tested and treated, that the pharmacy got a message from its wholesaler saying that you've exceeded the limit that we're prepared to provide. If you want to continue to have any medication from us before the next... You know, monthly cycle, you'll have to put up $150,000 in cash. <laughs> and, and, the, and the pharmacist did so, wow. so that he could continue to supply us with the hepatitis medication. So that was certainly going above and beyond, I think. <laughs> it's a little bit of a quirk of our system that it wasn't really designed to process such expensive medications. It's a good but
3: problem to have. <laughs> just
2: to kind of on that aside, I mean, these are expensive medications, but the Australian government has been one of the few governments in the world to really make them available either free or very cheap on the PBS to, to everybody in the country.
3: That, that's right. We're very fortunate in Australia. So the, these new medications, particularly when they were first developed in 2015, 2016, were quite expensive. So as as you mentioned, Nico, it's one of the really fortunate things, and I'm, I'm really proud of our government for doing this, is uh, they have unrestricted access to these medications for anyone living with hepatitis C, and that doesn't exist around the world. And by that, what we mean is that anyone with hepatitis C can access it. It doesn't matter whether it's your first infection with hepatitis C, whether it's your second, third, fourth, tenth, it doesn't matter. You can still access treatment. And it also doesn't matter if you've got very minor liver disease and you've had very short-term infection or whether you've had very long-term infection. Whereas other countries in the world, the government has prioritised for certain populations at highest risk, perhaps, of long-term complications of hepatitis C, such as those that have cirrhosis. The the people with very minor liver disease are not being able to access those treatment, which is a real problem in terms of hepatitis C elimination, as well as for that individual who then has to live with hepatitis C and can only access treatment once they get bad liver damage. Um,
2: So, of course, I our government uh, only subsidises medicines when it thinks it's really a good economic reason for that, and and their thinking is really that the more people we can treat now, the less people we'll have to treat in the future, and it's that, really... That's a,
3: right. A, so there's been, in fact, at the time that the government was deciding who was going to be eligible for these treatments, there was a number of different groups around Australia that did a lot of modelling, and what they really showed was that if you just treated the patients with cirrhosis, you could certainly improve the outcomes for those patients, but then... Really where the benefit lay was when you treated everybody because not only are you reducing the pool of hepatitis C infection that then can be transmitted onwards, you're also then treating these patients at an earlier stage of disease so that they don't end up with the complications of hepatitis C, the cirrhosis and and the end-stage liver failure and liver cancer that I mentioned. What you're doing is reducing the healthcare costs.
2: And I think that's the same around the world now. I think increasingly global modelling modelling is that... We should be treating particularly people who are currently injecting drugs yeah. or people who've uh, contacted contracted their hepatitis through through that model you know from our ex- uh, perspective, it's been a fantastic collaboration with St. v s and we've we've now screened more than twelve hundred people for hepatitis and treated more than two hundred and eighty and sioni you're somebody who's who's also had hepatitis see and and received these new treatments. Would you like to share some of your experience on that
1: okay yes yeah. so uh, my diagnosis was actually one of those ones that was really negative um and actually colored colored my engagement with um the medical fraternity for some time um i don't need to go into the detail of it but essentially uh, i wasn't told i was getting a hep c test and i was told in a really sort of offhand way that uh, i had hep c um in fact Uh, So that that was in the late 90s. And so um, by the time 2016, 17 rolled around, I'd had hep C for a good 20 years. But there were a a lot of reasons early on why I didn't engage in treatment and didn't engage in interferon. A lot of it had to do with the stories that I heard from people who had undertaken it. And those stories really genuinely still have echoes today. People... Um, they may know that there's a treatment, but they may get a little bit confused with the fact that that their friend that had it 10, 15 years ago had an awful time and they just felt felt like it was worse than having the infection. But I I had heard these medications were amazing and my my treatment was a pretty low threshold kind of treatment, you'd say, as well, so I didn't need to go and see a specialist. One of the reasons that worked really well for me is because similarly I had really a lot of competing priorities and wasn't always able to make the time to come and do the appointments and so on at a service and so being able to kind of have a, a nurse who was able to to, to work with me on uh, what worked best for me was really really helpful um, and it definitely meant that I was able to kind of engage in treatment probably you know a, a year or two earlier than I would have otherwise and when you've had it for 20 or so years I think at that point every year starts to feel like it's pretty important um, and did although you know, I,
0: at that point did you have any symptoms or
1: I didn't think I did, so it's definitely, you know, Jacinta talked about it being a silent disease, and it's true I didn't have sort of like shooting pains in my my liver or anything like that, but it was more probably about a year after I'd completed the treatment and just people have said before, you know, I didn't have any side effects whatsoever from the Mm. treatment at all that I can think of, but what I did notice is that well, it really took a, a while for me to actually reflect and realize that I had basically had a lot more energy uh, and I used to really put down the fact that I'd be you know fatigued or sleepy in the afternoons and then going to bed really early and stuff like that. I used to put that down to all sorts of things uh, and then I realized that actually my energy levels were had come back to being really quite you know, much higher than they were before, and that was that and sleeping much better as well are probably the two key things that I really noticed after after doing the treatment
2: uh, any um, people come to you and share their experiences of getting treated with us at the injecting room? Um, yeah,
1: we have, and um, we we HR have uh, a harm reduction Victoria. Um, both get feedback from people, um, just unbidden. People ring us up and tell us stuff, but also we do um, we do consultations. You know, people feel it's something that's for for us, for people who use and inject drugs, and there aren't many things that have just been built and put together for our community. It's very rare. You know, you could say the needle and Syringe programme probably and the and, and the
2: injecting rooms. Hearing your story, Sionia reminds me the first week the injecting room opened, we had somebody knock on the door and who said to us he didn't plan to inject in the injecting room. He just he was in fact he told us he was dying from liver cancer from hepatitis C and that how he just wished there'd been something like this twenty years earlier for him. So it's uh, it's, you know, it's really warming yeah. to feel the feedback from the people who are using the surface. I, the, I
1: yeah I gen, I really wish that there was an injecting room. Uh, when I was like using my main memories of, of injecting are you know and either at home of course but um, oftentimes in alleyways and you know car parks and stuff like that and um, it's it definitely doesn't just happen in Richmond. <laughs> it's it's everywhere. We need injecting rooms everywhere.
2: So Jacinda, you you talked a little bit about the plan for Australia to eliminate hepatitis C. What's the future looking like over the next five, ten years? How are we going to, what do we need to do to achieve that?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question, Nico. So um, I think one of the great things about Australia is for various different reasons, including access to treatment and the unrestricted access that we have and uh, very innovative and streamlined models of care, like the one that we're talking about at the MSIR, have been incredibly instrumental. We're still only 50% in terms of treating people with hepatitis C. So, you know, we started off with 220,000 or so, we're somewhere around about 120,000. So we've still got a lot of work to do and we've only got eight years to do it in terms of reaching those targets uh, for the WHO. In terms of how we do that, um, you know, we really need everyone to be on board um, and we need to be accessing or trying to engage the people that are not engaged in traditional models of care. So yeah, as a specialist I don't see anyone outside of my specialist practice because by definition they require a referral to see me. So we really need to partner with marginalized groups that are not accessing traditional healthcare models. We need to be engaging with populations that we know are high risk for hepatitis C that includes the injecting drug users. So that includes the injecting rooms of course, needle syringe programs, addiction medicine units. So we need to also concentrate our attention on in mental health facilities. Um, Homeless programs um, are also a key priority population. And as I mentioned, the prisons, and I do quite a lot of work with treatment of hepatitis C in the prisons, which currently represent about 30% of the prescriptions for hepatitis C in Victoria.
2: From what I understand, after the prison system, the injecting room is the second biggest provider of hepatitis care in Victoria at the moment. And, and I think in-
3: we need to make hep C treatment and access to treatment and testing as easy as it is as possible. So these new point of care testing models, I think, are wonderful. And the government needs to do more to actually get those um, rolled out at a population level, because currently they're through research programs because of the Medicare bulk billing Requirements for it, and we also have to remember that some of these people that continue to use are still at risk of getting hep C again. So, once you've had it, it doesn't mean you can't get it again. And so, re screening these patients is also really important.
1: And that's actually a really key thing, as well. There is, um, you know, the work that we've done in the community, we've talked about testing and treatment. Like, one of the most common things people say is, I've been tested, it's okay.
4: Yeah, I get the same. <laughs> Yeah. A, yeah, that's so, and, you yeah. know, I've, like I've how long had ago? <laughs> hepatitis. I've been treated three years ago, so yeah. everything's okay. And the first thing I have to say is, well, you can get it again. And we like to test once a year, at least once a year.
2: Sione, you mentioned yeah. the program that, that Harm Reduction Victoria is running at the moment. That's a, there's a 1-800 number that people can call to to access the, the service. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, there's a health promotion campaign happening at the moment with, you know, billboards and bus posters and whatnot. Uh, by EC Australia in harm reduction Victoria, is, uh, so it's eliminate Hep C Australia. So that number is one 806 and they'll also be going out in buses with uh, integrated hepatitis nurses, actually as well.
2: If you call that number, somebody will tell you where you, the, yep. the easiest way you can get diagnosed and, and treated. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Someone mentioned earlier fibre scan that was lost on me. Okay, could you explain oh, what what is that?
4: Yeah, a scan is a machine a bit like an ultrasound, but it, yeah. it uh, can measure the stiffness of the liver. So it's a non, we call it a non-invasive test. So it's a where a probe's put over where the liver is on the right, just below the ribs, and uh, you can test how stiff the liver is so that it's just a good measure along with blood tests to see the state of, someone's liver. And is mm. especially useful if they've had hepatitis C for a long time or if they're drinking alcohol, a lot of mm. a heavy amount of alcohol. But um, it's, it's a useful test. Anyway, actually, I just learned how to use the machine last year. And I find that a lot of our clients are very curious about it when I offer it. But, you know, I say, would you like to have your liver tested to see how stiff it is? And a lot of them say yes. And that leads me to really believe that Clients might appear to not care about their health but actually they do and when you give them an opportunity to do something like have a, a liver screen, I think it's another way that you can personally engage with them but um, it's another way where you can give them some feedback and if their liver is a bit stiff or well, you can sort of say to them, well, this, this is what's happening here. So it can help them to start to think about how they might want to or not want to change their lifestyle to to address that issue
2: and as you said before, I've, I've had many people say to me after they have treated their hepatitis, they, how what a sense of achievement it gives them, and, and yep. a sense of, you know, well, if I can deal with that, I can deal with other things in my life too, and to, to start thinking more constructively about yep. taking on other making other projects or making other changes yeah. in their life that they would previously put in the too hard basket.
4: Exactly. Yeah, I've had one client who I remember very well who. When he um, was cured for his Hep C, he said, "Oh, I feel so good about this. I'm going to get my eyes tested now." And then, and he also ended up coming to our dentist here at North Richmond Community Health. And I still see him every now and again. And um, he he delights in telling me, you know, what health issue, what the latest <laughs> health issue is, is that he's addressed. And I think that you know how fantastic is that. He he really mm. had multiple, and still does have multiple health issues, diabetes and the like. You know, these are serious issues, but to have eliminated um, a major one like Hep C and um, and then to start addressing other issues
3: like big dental problems and poor eyesight is um, just great. Yeah, I can mm. echo that. I've, I mean, I've been treating Hepatitis C for 13, 14 years now, and it's amazing how many of my patients will come back to me and say how, how much better they're feeling and how much more productive they are. But also that relief of not having to say i've got hepatitis c anymore it's incredibly liberating for them Mm.
0: thank you to my co-host dr nico and thank you to our guests jacinta sione and jenny As the EMSA attracts people with high health and support needs, it's great to hear about this service that helps them with hep C and contributes to eradicating hep C in Australia. And that's all for the podcast today. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next one.